Yeah, Heavenly Father, this is your word. Uh, you have spoken to us. This is your, your revelation of yourself to us. We're thankful. Uh, just as we've said, thanks be to God. There's tremendous meaning to, to what we're actually trying to say there. We, we are thankful to you for showing yourself to us. Uh, Lord, we pray now as we hear you speak about yourself and about us and about your church and about your son Jesus, please help us to have ears to hear. Lord, please help us to be those who trust this word and be those who obey this word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, you might not have noticed this, but churches do some pretty weird things. Have you noticed this? Churches do some weird things. We sing. <laughs> That's not a thing that, that often happens in public. You know, a bunch of Aussies don't usually get together and sing unless it's like the AFL Grand Final. I don't know if you guys watched that yesterday. It was pretty bad, apparently, <laughs> the singing at the AFL Grand Final. Uh, we don't normally, as Aussies, get together and hear a bloke stand up and talk about a book for 40 minutes. That doesn't happen. Uh, and yet we as a church do those things. Uh, there's an explanation for why we do those things. Uh, but they're kind of weird in Aussie culture. Would you agree? Um, it's sort of families have weird traditions, right? It's, it's part of being part of a family. Uh, Sky was telling me about a family she knows. Uh, she sort of grew up being friends with the daughter in this family. Uh, the weird thing that they do, and this is bizarre, uh, the way that Sky described to me, she said, I was very disturbed whenever I saw this. Uh, they each have animal noises in this family, like personalised for each member of the family. And they'll go around the house chasing each other, making these animal noises. Okay, so one of them's a gorilla, one of them's... Yes, that's weird, Mary. Yes, it is. Thank you. There's a lion and so on and so on. They chase them. Now, um, these folk have since grown up. One of them's an eye surgeon. <laughs> One of them has a law degree, the other is a psychologist, <laughs> which often those who enter that profession need the most help, right? <laughs> right? Families have weird traditions. Sometimes it seems like there's no explanation for them. Uh, we, as a church family, have sort of weird-seeming traditions. For example, when someone becomes a follower of Jesus, it would appear that we drown them just a little bit, all right? <laughs> Once every week, at least at this church, we come together, we hand around a little tiny piece of bread, little tiny cup of juice. Everyone has them. Everyone seems pretty peaceful about it, even though it's clearly not enough food for anyone. Right, well, why do we do these things? Are they just sort of weird family traditions that have no explanation? Like in my family I grew up in, we, we have this thing called celebratory pudding. Right? We're not celebrating anything. We just have pudding. Uh, is that kind of what this is? Baptism and communion, weird family traditions that have no explanation. May seem that way, uh, particularly if you're someone who hasn't been around church much or, or isn't a Christian, you're watching on. Or it might seem that way if after many years you've been attending church and you, for example, here at this church, like I said, we do communion every single week. It can become rote. It can become like, oh yeah, why am I having this little bit of bread and this little bit of juice? I feel close to Jesus when I do it, but what's actually the purpose of this? We can lose touch with it. What is the reason that we have these sacraments, baptism and communion? Well, today we're going to see the reason, the purpose. We're going to see how important these sacraments are for the church, baptism and communion. 
Uh, in fact, they're, they're right there at the very beginning of the church. If you've got your Bibles there, uh, turn again to page 910. Why do we do these things? Why do we do them this way? Well, since the very beginning of the church, these things have been here. And so Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Um, Peter has, has gotten up. Uh, the Holy Spirit has, has come upon him after Jesus' resurrection, just as Christ promised. He gets up, he speaks a sermon to these gathered people. Um, they hear it in different languages. It's this, this amazing moment. Um, and, uh, and he's preaching really the gospel. That's his sermon. He's preaching that, that Christ has come as the fulfillment of God's eternal plan to bring salvation, right? So here he is preaching this word. Take a look at verse 36. Here's kind of the summary of his whole message. Verse 36, do you see it there? It says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. So everyone who's gathered here, he says, know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's saying to them, the reason that Jesus was crucified was because of you. You put him on the cross. And really, he's saying that to all of us today, right? All of our sin has put Jesus on the cross, our rebellion against God. That's why Jesus went and died. But God has made him the Lord and has made him the Christ, the anointed one, the Savior, the King of all creation through his death for our sins, bringing forgiveness and his resurrection from the dead, showing he's the true king. That's Peter's message. Look at the response. Verse 37, what happens to the crowd? They're cut to the heart. Now God opens their hearts so that they, they hear the full weight and carry the full freight of this message. And they say, brothers, what shall we do? I wonder if you've had that moment in your life where you've heard this message and you've just gone, what shall I do? In the, the light of who this Jesus is, what shall I do? Look at what Peter says then in verse 38. Here's what he says to do. Peter said to them, repent. That means chuck a U-turn. Turn the opposite way you've been going. Turn away from sin. Turn to Jesus. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He tells them, repent, turn away from your sin. Instead, turn to Jesus. Your sins will be forgiven. But notice something else he calls them to do. Do you see it there? Be baptized. This was here, right at the beginning of Jesus' church. Be baptized. And that's why you get down in verse 41, if you can see it. Those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Baptism was a key feature of the early church. And then notice what these baptized people do when they gather together. Verse 42. Having been baptized, having been, um, as, as it says, there's 3,000 of them there. They've been added to this, this church family and what they do is they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. That is, as the apostles get up and preach, they, they listen and trust and obey. Uh, they devote themselves to the fellowship, to the church, and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And the breaking of bread there is a reference to communion, to the Lord's Supper. Um, the, the writer here, Luke, 
uh, could have just said they ate together, they devoted themselves to eating together, but he says breaking of bread. He uses this again over in Acts chapter 20. It's a reference to breaking bread and passing it around to remember the death of the Lord Jesus. So do you see, uh, right at the beginning of the early church, baptism and communion, really key markers of the church. Uh, If you jump forward another sort of 1,500-odd years, you have a historical event called the Reformation. Heard of the Reformation before? A really key moment in history for a whole lot of reasons, but particularly religiously. Um, You've got the Catholic Church, which at this point had had totally lost its way, was telling people you can essentially pay money to be saved. And so you have guys like Martin Luther coming and saying, no, (laughs) that's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, And a bunch of other guys, John Calvin and and others, all sort of carrying this message just of the gospel. Uh, You can't pay for your salvation. Jesus has paid for it. You just need to trust him, turn to him. Um, and, And so at this time, there's some things being written about how do we understand who the church is. Now that we've come out of the Catholic Church, we know that we're not a church by virtue of being under a pope and by virtue of being part of this Catholic system. Um, So we need to define what now is the church. There's a confession, a document called the Augsburg Confession, which followers of Martin Luther helped put together. Uh, And it says this, The church is the congregation of saints in which, notice two things, The gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments rightly administered. Interesting that right here, again at the cusp of defining what the church is at the Reformation, uh, these guys say the gospel's rightly taught and the sacraments, that is baptism and communion, rightly administered. Now the significance of that is the Catholic Church is saying baptism saves you and the Catholic Church is saying the the bread and the juice are literally the body and the blood of Christ. Uh, And so in saying that the sacraments are rightly administered, uh, these guys are saying, no, (laughs) it's not that baptism saves you or that this is literally the body and blood of Christ. There's something else to these. They're, They're rightly administered as opposed to how the Catholic Church has been doing it. You following me on that? I know this is a lot of historical detail. Um, But again, at this turning point, they define the church as gospel rightly taught, sacraments rightly administered. Uh, Another guy, John Calvin at this time, um, says, uh, wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, there it is not to be doubted a church of God exists where the word is rightly taught, sacraments rightly practiced. And this might bring you back to a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the difference between true church and false church, if you were here for that. Um, We were talking about how the gospel has to be rightly taught for a church to be considered a true church. Um, And there's some link here with the gospel being rightly taught and baptism and communion being rightly practiced. And we want to kind of work out today, what exactly is that link? We can see that this is so crucial. It's been crucial from the very beginning of the church and the turning point of the church in the Reformation. But but why? Why is it that these things are so important for the church's identity? Why is it that these are more than just a weird family tradition, but they're actually essential building blocks? Well, we're going to work that out today, looking first at baptism and then at communion. Uh, But the first thing to grab here, and this is just a bit of background, is that baptism and communion are signposts. Like I said, they they don't save us. The Catholic Church taught that. 
um, but they don't save us. If you've still got Acts 2 open, take a look again at verse 41. Who are the ones that are baptized? Who are the ones that are baptized? So those who received his word were baptized. Right, so, so who are the, one of the, the ones that are baptized? The ones who receive what Peter is saying, who receive and trust the message of the gospel, that Christ has come to bring forgiveness and new life through his death on the cross in their place. Those are the ones who are baptized. It's not the other way around. It's not you get baptized and now you're forgiven. It's you're forgiven by trusting the gospel and then you're baptized. Uh, belief comes before baptism. I could take you to plenty of other passages that make that clear. Um, if that's something you're struggling with, trying to work out, please come and chat with me afterwards. Love to go into that with more detail. But just, just to really grab that point, it's essential to grab that. Um, baptism and communion don't save us. They don't put us in God's grace. They don't put us right with God. Um, they are signposts. They actually point back to the fact that we're right with God through faith in the gospel. In fact, and, and this is really interesting, why baptism? Because a signpost could just be when someone becomes a Christian, they get up and they say, hey, I'm a Christian now, and everyone goes, great, and then that's it. Communion could just be I get up and I say, hey, remember, uh, Jesus died for you giving his body, and he spilled his blood for you. And do we all remember? And everyone goes, yes, and then that's it. That's communion. Why do we have water? And why do we have uh, bread and juice because you can't see the gospel you can't taste the gospel uh, the fact of Jesus cleansing someone of sin you can't see that you don't see all the sin falling off them do you but you can see someone go down into water and come back up and understand oh that's like when someone washes themselves or is washed Oh, that's kind of like when Jesus washes sin off someone, right? It's not in that moment that their sin is washed off, but it reflects that. It's a signpost back to that. It's taking something invisible, the invisible reality of God washing us of our sin in Christ, and making it visible. Similarly, you can't really taste <laughs> that Jesus has spilt his blood to save you. Like, and would you want to taste that? Well, not really. But we participate in that reality by faith. Here, in communion, we have a holdable, tangible, visible, tasteable reality of the gospel, an expression of the gospel. Do you see? What this is like, it's like um, when we use baby language with children, Okay. There's not a lot that kids can really grip and understand when they're very, very young. Like, for example, my nephews, I've got twin nephews, Daniel and Henry. Um, when Sky and I go to visit them, we come in the door, we stand at the door, and then they point at us and they go, do do. And they're not saying door, they're actually saying shoes. <laughs> do do. And I go, yes, yes, I'm taking off my do do. Right now, I don't say to them, oh, no, child, actually. Shoes is what you're meant to say. Joggers. I'm taking off my joggers. Can you say that? Joggers. Now they can't do that yet. <laughs> right? I say, dodo. Yeah, because that's what they say. That's what they can understand at this point. I'm taking off my dodo. And that's, here's God saying to us, dodo. 
right? Here's God coming to our level and giving us something we can grip and hold and taste and see about the gospel in baptism and communion. What an act of kindness in helping us understand an incredible reality, an incredible mystery. Now, with that in place, let me just show you three things that baptism expresses about the gospel. Three incredible mysteries that it makes visible for us. All right. Um, Come with me, if you could, to page 999, Titus chapter 3, verses 5 to 6. Here's the first thing. Baptism points, remember it's a signpost. Baptism points to Jesus cleansing us. When someone's baptized, they're saying, I'm, I'm, I'm now symbolizing the beginning of my Christian walk. And the beginning of that Christian walk is Jesus cleansing us from sin. And this is kind of the obvious point of baptism, because you know, it's washing, it's water, we get that. Um, Take a look there, verses 5 to 6, Titus 3. He saved us, Jesus saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Uh, There's the invisible reality, okay? Um, we're washed from our sin, renewed. And, and baptism puts that on display. It declares to the person going under the water, you've been cleaned. You've been washed from your sin. Your heart has been changed by Jesus. You can now stand confidently before God because of your faith in the gospel. Not because of your own works, works done by us in righteousness, but according to God's own mercy. Now again, you can't physically see that transaction happening, that forgiveness and that washing, um, but baptism takes that invisible reality, which this person's already experienced, and makes it clear for everyone to see. And that's kind of the most obvious point of baptism, but take a look at the second point. Baptism shows we have a new allegiance Come with me to Romans chapter 6. It's on page 942. Romans 6, page 942. Paul has just explained through the book of Romans, which, by the way, if you've never read the first five chapters of Romans, give them a read today. They're incredible. This, the way it describes the gospel and all that it means for us. Um, Paul's just described in these first five chapters how we have been saved by grace, by God's free gift. Uh, We can't work to earn it. He gives it to us for free by faith. Now, um, think about that statement that God gives us this free gift of salvation with Australian blood flowing through your veins, uh, with with the convict spirit hanging about you, okay? Um, What is it that maybe you start to think? As Aussies, we can sometimes be a bit cheeky. If you give us a loophole, like we'll take it, all right? So maybe you start thinking, well, God's given me this thing for free. Then I can go and live my life however I want and God will forgive me. He has to forgive me. He's given me the gift. That's the argument of verse one. Take a look. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Are we to keep sinning that God's grace just keeps meeting that sin over and over again, no matter what I do? 
by no means. Verse 2, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? See, there's a reality here. If, if Jesus has saved us, our old life is gone. Your old life is gone. Our life of sin and rebellion is, is actually over. It's finished. Now, we still struggle with sin, don't we? We still do sin. I do. But sin is no longer our master. Our old life with our old allegiance to sin and to self is dead. It's gone. We have now a new allegiance, a new master, Jesus, our Savior, our Lord. Take a look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, baptism puts on display for us the reality that we now have a new allegiance. Our old life is gone. Our new life of allegiance to Jesus is here. Uh, when someone goes under the water, what they're saying is, I'm, I'm done with my old life of sin. With sin is my master. Um, as it says there, you've been baptized into Christ Jesus, into his death, buried with him in baptism. And then, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too are, are raised to a new life. And we walk now in a newness of life, a life of, of new allegiance to Christ. It's a bit like when a, a footy player changes clubs, right? Uh, they get a new uniform, a new jersey. And if they go up against their old club, they don't wear their old jersey. They don't start running with the guys that they used to run with and trying to score a goal for, or score a try or whatever for, for the guys they used to run with. They've got a new jersey. They're running the opposite direction now. And even if, if they're losing horribly to the team they used to play for, right? Think like Greater Western Sydney yesterday, if you watched, <laughs> right? Like down by 80 points or something. They still keep on the new jersey. So for Christians, even when life gets hard or we, we wrestle with some stuff that we don't like hearing or like working with or, or we get hurt or whatever, um, we keep the new jersey on. We have a new allegiance. We don't have the old jersey on underneath just to rip off this one and go back to this one and then oh, I'll put this on when life gets easy again. It's a new allegiance. It's a clean break, right? That's what baptism symbolizes, that once for all, I'm leaving the old life behind and now following Jesus. He's my Lord. He's my master. So there's two things that baptism symbolizes. It points to Jesus cleansing us from our sin, the forgiveness, and it shows that we have a new allegiance. But also, and this third point is crucial, baptism shows we're united with Christ. This is such an encouragement. Uh, this is all throughout Romans 6, by the way. Uh, even just look at the language at, at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, look at the word there, been baptized into Christ Jesus? Into Christ Jesus. We're baptized into his death. We were buried therefore, what's the word? Therefore, with. Do you see that there? 
We were buried with him. There's this unity. We're baptized into his death. We're buried with him. We're raised with him. Look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. See, by faith, I'm not just under Jesus, nor am I just living for Jesus. I'm actually united with Jesus. That's an incredible reality. I'm actually immersed into Jesus. That's what the word baptism means in Greek. Baptizo means to immerse. I immerse. That's why we baptize people in water, not with sprinkling. Um, it's because you're actually immersed into Jesus. I'm united with him. And now all that's true of Jesus is actually true of me. Have you thought about that if you're a Christian? All that's true of Jesus is now true of you. It's like if you um, are about to go on a holiday and get on a plane. Now, Sky and I, in a couple of weeks, uh, we're very blessed. Uh, we're going to go to Broome. Um, we can't afford to go over to Broome and, and tour the Kimberley, and that's what we're going to do. It's because my family's paying for it all, which is incredibly nice. Um, but, uh, so we're going to go over. Now, how are we going to get there? By plane. We're, I can see Sky, she's going, we're not driving. <laughs> no. We'll go by plane. And, uh, and can you just picture us, you know, we're at the airport. Uh, it doesn't help if you're just inspired by the plane. Right? If you like put your hand up into the, the glass pane and look at the plane taking off and go, oh, one day I hope to do that too. Right? It, you're not going to get to Broome by just being inspired by the plane. Uh, nor is it going to help if you just follow the plane. Right? We'll be driving across the Nullarbor. That <laughs> won't be so good. Um, the way that you get to Broome is by being in the plane. Right? And then whatever happens to the plane is what happens to you. If the plane arrives in Broome, you arrive in Broome as well. Uh, so too with Jesus not just being inspired by him, not just following him. We're actually in him. We're united with him. And so now Jesus' death was in fact our death. His death for sin was in fact the death for our sin, right? When he was buried, our old life and our sin was buried with him by faith in him. As he's raised from the dead, we too are raised to newness of life and to eternal life. Um, as Jesus can have a clear conscience before God because he's righteous and sinless, we have been declared righteous and sinless before the Father. Uh, we can have a clear conscience. We have no fear for the coming judgment. As Jesus is the Son of God, we are considered sons and daughters of God because we're united with Christ. This is an incredible reality. And we can see it in baptism. Again, to accentuate, it doesn't happen at baptism. It happens when we put our faith in Christ. But at baptism, it's on display. We can see that this person being baptized is united with Jesus. Do you see, this takes incredible, huge, mysterious realities and puts them on display for us as a church. This is why it's so crucial. And you can see, therefore, that, that as Christians, well, of course, we'd want to be baptized. And of course, we'd want to see people who become Christians be baptized. Can you see that the opposite is also true? That if you're not a Christian, actually, why would you want to be baptized? <laughs> right? Because you'd be expressing something that perhaps you don't actually hold to or believe. 
it's not just a ritual. It's not just a family tradition. Uh, this is something just full of meaning and significance. And so it only makes sense for a Christian to be baptized. Just by the way, that's why we as a church don't baptize infants. And there are some churches that do, even great churches that do. Uh, we don't, um, under the conviction that um, an infant can't make yet a credible profession of faith. Uh, belief comes before baptism, right? They can't yet make a credible statement of belief. So it doesn't make sense for them yet to be baptized. Um, but when a believer is baptized, oh, gee, what an occasion for celebration. Because here's someone that we can see as a church has been brought from death to life, has had their sin washed away, and is saying, my allegiance is now to Jesus. I'm united with him. And as a church then, uh, the church says, well, yep, you're with us too. Now, what an incredible reality. Now, the same is true of communion. It takes some very uh, invisible uh, and mysterious even realities and, and makes them visible for us. Um, and I want to just show us three points on this too. So come with me to uh, Matthew chapter 26, if you could. Matthew chapter 26. It's on page 832. Um, if baptism is the start, or it symbolizes rather the start of the Christian journey, communion symbolizes the continuation of the Christian journey. It's why baptism happens just once, because the journey doesn't start over and over again. It starts by faith in Jesus once for all. And then communion continues. Why does communion continue? Why do we do this every week? Well, we'll see why. Firstly, because communion points to the past. Um, here in Matthew 26, what we have is actually Jesus um, sharing a, a Passover meal with his disciples. It's, it's uh, pointing back to the Old Testament when God saved his people from Egypt. Um, so he's sharing this meal with them and he then does the first Lord's Supper the first communion. He sort of appropriates the Passover meal and gives it new significance. Um, look what happens. Verse 26. These are familiar words for many of us. Uh, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. Not literally. <laughs> Right Again, this is something that the Catholic Church taught at the time of the Reformation. Uh, many still do continue to teach, and based on a verse like this, it says, this is my body. But um, if I say to you this, um, he is a lion in battle. Does that mean that literally he turns into a lion when he goes to, to fight in war? You know, it, it's a metaphor. This is, this is part of speech. Sometimes we say something is something, um, but it's not literalistically true. We're, we're sort of taking the qualities of the, the thing we're comparing to and applying them to the subject. He is a lion in battle. Oh, like he's ferocious or he's courageous or something. This is my body, says Jesus. So there's, there's going to be some significance here about the bread that applies to the body of Jesus. It's a metaphor. So he says, this is my body. And then he took a cup and he'd given thanks after he'd given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink it, drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, 
which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, he actually gives a bit more explanation there in terms of the, the wine or we have the juice, in terms of the significance of this. What does the drink actually represent? Well, it represents his blood spilled for sin, his life paid for ours, that he might secure for us the new covenant, the new promise, the promise of salvation by trusting in his death once for all. And in terms of the, the bread, um, he says, this is my body. It sort of points back as well to the fact that Jesus came as a human. See, because only a human could be the sacrifice for sin. In the same way that, that the Passover, which this meal points back to, uh, they had to take a lamb and kill the lamb and then paint the, the blood of this lamb on the door frames, really confronting, but, but meant to be a, a symbol that only the death of a creature could pay for the sins of the people. And at that, an unblemished creature, an unblemished lamb. Here, only Jesus as a human, and at that, the perfect sinless human, could pay for the sins of people. This is my body. He comes as a baby, he grows up, he never sins, and then his body is sacrificed for us on the cross. See, this is pointing back to the past at these historical events where Jesus came, body and blood, and gave his life for ours. That's a big part of the significance of communion, but there's more as well. And probably if you're a bit like me, when you have communion here each week, um, you're thinking more about the past. What does this point to in the past about the gospel? That's good, but there's more. Because communion, the Lord's Supper, also points to the present. It points to the present. Uh, let me ask you this. If you died tonight, I hope not, but if you died tonight and you appear before God at his judgment seat and he says to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? See, if the answer is anything but Jesus died for me, to take my sin and the judgment I deserve and I trust him, then you haven't got a hope. Sorry, but like neither do I. Like maybe you look at me and you think, oh, he's a pastor. He must be a great bloke. Like follow me around for 24 hours. Like no, <laughs> I'm improving. Don't get me wrong by God's grace. Um, but I don't have a leg to stand on before God and his perfect holy standard. Nor does anyone. It's only by trusting in Jesus. And that trust in Jesus isn't just one day and then great, I move on and I can trust in something else. It's, it's a trust that like, we need to keep setting our hope on him every day. Communion reminds us of that. It's why we have food and drink. Because without food and drink just about every day, what happens? We starve. We dehydrate. Have you ever been truly hungry? Like, I'm talking like really, truly hungry. <laughs> I, I don't think I really have been, but the closest I've come was when I had a stomach bug and couldn't eat for like four or five days. So I was, I was, I didn't want to eat for those four or five days, right? That's what happens when you get really, really sick. But I was out watching a, a soccer game with some friends on a Saturday, just towards the end of this bug. And it sort of just all hit me at once. Like all the four or five days of starvation just smashed me. And it felt like my stomach was 
tearing itself apart. And that's where I smelt like the sausage sizzle coming on the breeze and I run over and I'm like, oh yes, finally. And I have no money. Right? So, so I, just, I just, can you just give me like bread or something, right? I'm so hungry. And they give me a stack of white coals, 99 cents sandwich bread, not to smash it down, right? Because I'm so hungry. And that's, that's the desperation for Jesus, really. I'm starving. Where else can I go for life? Take a look at, at John chapter 6 with me, page 892. John chapter 6. This is one of Jesus' most famous miracles. Uh, he's just fed a crowd of 5,000 people using just bread and just fish from a couple of baskets, right? It's like five, uh, what is it? Um, five loaves of bread and two fish. Yep. Um, he takes these and multiplies them so that um, a crowd of 5,000 men, plus women, plus children, can eat. Incredible right? But the miracle isn't the point. The miracle is a signpost. Here's his summary of it on page 892, John 6, 53. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Which um, all sounds pretty gross if you don't take this metaphorically. <laughs> um, again, which the Catholic Church has done. Uh, it's, it's taken this literally or literalistically, um, but we understand that this is talking about trusting in Christ, feeding on his flesh, saying, I'm going to starve without you, Jesus. Drinking his blood, I'm going to go thirsty. I'm going to die without you, Jesus. I'm going to have no life. But when we come and we turn to him and trust him, we have eternal life, our only hope. And so here in communion, the reason that we eat is it because it reminds us how much we need Jesus day by day. There's value in doing this each week. I'm sure you can see. It's not a biblical requirement, but there's value in it. So communion points to our present need for Jesus. And also, communion points to the future. This is just a really quick point, um, but it points to the fact that one day we're going to share in the wedding feast of the Lamb. One day we're going to share in the best party ever, the party of, of heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, where Jesus finally receives his bride, the church. Jesus finally receives all that he's owed, that is his people. He receives the glory that he deserves. We'll sing. We'll worship him. We'll see him as he is. We'll praise God and we'll share in this great feast. Communion points us forward to it. Um, if you take a look um, back in, in Matthew 26, verse 29, if you've still got your finger there, um, he says, I, I tell you, Jesus says, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He's pointing forward to that day. When he'll drink again with us uh, at this, this wedding feast of the Lamb. And probably there's something significant. because Communion, by the way, Lord's Supper, was originally um, celebrated in the context of a feast. 
So you'd have like big, huge loaves of bread and you pass them around and, and all of that. Today, um, we tend to just use a little piece of bread and, and a small cup of juice. Perhaps some of the significance of that is right now, we only have a glimpse of that wedding feast. We only have a small part of it. It will not compare to the reality to come. Right? And so this is a reminder of, wow, if, if what I have now in Christ is so good, imagine what's coming. It's going to be far greater. So you see, once again, communion takes these invisible, even mysterious realities for us and makes them really quite visible and even holdable and tasteable. And it makes sense, therefore, for a Christian to want to celebrate communion as we gather as a church. The opposite is also true. It doesn't make sense if you're not a Christian to, to celebrate this. Because again, like you can have a tiny bit of gluten-free bread if you want, and like a tiny bit of juice. It's not really going to fill you up, and it's not really going to quench your thirst. If anything, you'll feel like more thirsty afterwards, right? But, but unless you're with us rehearsing the significance of these things for you, that the gospel is your past and present and future, then there's no significance to this. I, I just ask, like, why would you want to actually do this? So do you see... Uh, there's tremendous significance in this for the church. These are, this is why these are essential building blocks. They help us rehearse the gospel. They remind us of the gospel. They point us to the gospel again and again and again. And I just want to finish by giving us two points on, on maybe just to clarify how important this is in two specific ways. Uh, firstly, that baptism and communion give us boundary lines as a church. They give us boundary lines as a church. Like they help us understand and see who's with Jesus and who's part of his church. So if someone credibly declares that they trust in Jesus and then they show that in baptism, then it's sort of like they're, they're visibly part of Jesus' church. Can you see that? See what I'm saying there? Now, they're already invisibly part of Jesus' church before baptism. I know that's a weird concept. They're already invisibly part because they're part of the universal church of all believers of all time by faith in Jesus. Okay? Baptism doesn't add you to that universal, all Christians everywhere church. Um, faith in Jesus does. But when someone is baptized, they're saying visibly, I'm with Jesus. I'm with Jesus. My allegiance is now to him. I believe that, that he really has washed my sin away. I believe that I really am united with him. And then the church has an opportunity to say, yep, we believe you're with Jesus. Do you see that, that sort of happening? It's, it forms, therefore, a bit of a, a boundary line that those who have been baptized are clearly part of Jesus' church. And it makes sense for them then to share with a local church in communion. That makes sense for them. Um, now, and just to clarify, that doesn't mean that every time you join a new local church, like if you move house and go live out in Albury, Wodonga, that you have to find a church and get baptized again to share communion there with that church. No. Baptism, remember, is once for all because faith in Christ is once for all salvation and Christ's sacrifice is once for all for all of his people, okay? So you're baptized once by a church that teaches the gospel, a true church, and then for all time, that's, that's visibly on display for the church, for any local church that also believes and teaches the gospel. 
But that is a boundary line. Um, and so too with, with communion, um, for someone that's going to take the bread and, and take the juice, what they're really saying, remember, is I'm pointing to the past and I believe Jesus died for me and that he's my only hope. And I'm pointing to the present and without him right now, I have no hope. And I'm pointing to the future and I believe, honestly, that I'm going to share in that wedding feast of the Lamb with all of you together who are also taking this with me. Again, it doesn't make sense for a, a non-Christian to participate in that. It doesn't make sense for someone who um, hasn't yet been baptized and declared I'm with Jesus publicly and I'm with his church to participate in that. Now, I know that sounds perhaps a little bit mean. I know that sounds a bit like, well, hold on, like who are we to decide? Well, see, the last thing I think that we would want as a church for anyone is to be self-deceived. Okay, so think like, for example, if you're not a Christian and you come along and you think, well, if I sort of hang around here for X period of time, even though I don't really trust Jesus, if I just sort of hang around, I'll become like part of the furniture. I'll become part of the family, just kind of by hanging around. No. <laughs> like, we love that you're here. If you're not a Christian, we, we want you to be here. We want you to hang around with us and keep hanging around with us. But that's not how you become part of Jesus' family. Instead, we, we say to you, turn, repent, and put your trust in Jesus. Do it today before it's too late. Right? It's actually... This is a loving thing to do. We don't want you to be self-deceived in thinking that you're okay just by hanging around and coming to church. That's why boundary lines are important. And it may be that, that you're hearing all this and you're thinking, well, you know, actually I have put my faith in Jesus. Stan. Like as you've talked about all the significance of baptism, communion and the gospel, yeah, like I do. I do believe all of that and my allegiance is to Jesus and yet you haven't been baptised. Or maybe you were baptized as an infant when you couldn't make a credible profession of faith but haven't yet been baptized as a believer. And maybe you're hearing all this and going, like, great, I would love to be baptized. I would actually love to publicly stand up and say, I'm with Jesus. And I would love for Jesus' church to stand with me and say, yeah, he's with Jesus and he's with us. If that's you, great, awesome. Uh, or it may be that um, you, you believe you're a Christian, haven't yet been baptized, and that's because of some sort of, maybe it's a fear. Maybe you're carrying some sort of fear that, for example, um, if I were to take this step, it's like, it's really, it's, it's like signing a contract, isn't it? It's like, I'm putting my name on the dotted line, like, oof, that just feels very weighty. It's really worth working through that. Because that's, that's perhaps a hard issue that I'm willing to sort of say to myself, um, I'm with Jesus and I have faith in him. But is it kind of like I've got the new jersey on over the top, but the old jersey's still on underneath? Like if things get hard or I hear something I don't like or whatever, I might just take this jersey off again. And that's, I don't quite want to be baptized because... I just want to keep my options a little bit open. Now, I'm not suggesting that's necessarily true of you if you haven't been baptised, but that's what we need to search our hearts about because our hearts are very deceptive. Um, and so I really encourage you to do that. If you're a Christian and haven't been baptised, search why is that in the depths of your heart. Talk about it with someone. In fact, I would love to talk about that with you and just listen to what's going on for you. Um, if you're a Christian, haven't yet been baptised, 
come and chat with me afterwards or chat with, chat with Rob, uh, chat with Andrew down the back. Uh, we would love just to, to listen to you and, and help you understand what's going on there and why that is. Uh, and we would love for you in the course of time to be baptised. That would be awesome if indeed you are a Christian. Um, just another word to those of you looking on who are Christians and have been baptised and maybe sort of as you hear all this, you go, yeah, give it to them, Dan. Like, I just can't wait for so-and-so to be baptised because it's been such a long time, you know, or whatever. Um, I, I would just urge, rather than pressure, <laughs> I, would, I would suggest um, prayerful patience and prayerful support because um, baptism is not a box to be ticked. It's a genuine step and, and really ought to be the first step of obedience for a Christian, but it does take searching the heart and making sure, yes, indeed, I am willing to publicly stand up before Jesus' church and say, I'm with Jesus, and he really is my master now. That, that's a huge thing. So I would, again, not pressure, but prayerful patience and support. Um, so faith expressed in, in baptism and communion, helpful in drawing boundary lines for the church. But just to finish on one final point, they're also essential for the church because we need reminding. <laughs> I need reminding. How about you? We need reminding of the gospel. Our faith goes up and down. We get so distracted. We're weak. I'm weak. And so if you're a Christian and you, you have been baptized, then here in the sacraments, you actually have something to point back to. You have a signpost to the gospel in your own life. I can't remember when I was actually baptized here about a decade ago. Um, you may not know this. There's actually a pool just underneath here. It's, it's not kept full, so the, the water's not like janky and stuff. Um, but there is a pool just under the ground here, and this is right where I was baptised. And you know, I point back to that day, just as I was reflecting on it this week, and I'm going, wow, that was actually a significant turning point for me, where actually, although I was a Christian for many years beforehand, um, that was a significant turning point for me, saying I'm really committed to Jesus and his church. Um, I point back to that, and I just see God's kindness in the gospel. He saved me, he brought a new heart about in me, and he's been growing me. And if you're a Christian who's been baptized, you have that to point back to. It helps just bolster your commitment. You can feel your faith strengthen. And in communion, you have something to hold and to see and to taste that, that declares, uh, Jesus is my hope because of what he's done in the past. And so I set my hope on him in the present. And I know the future that I have with him and his people. We need this because we're weak. Our consciences prick us when we sin, sometimes causing us to doubt. Our commitment wavers. We get distracted. And so to those of us in that condition, just want to finish with these words from, again, John Calvin. This is really quite beautiful. Baptism and communion are an outward sign by which the Lord seals on our consciences the promises of his goodwill towards us in order to sustain the weakness of our faith. Why has God given us these things? Because we're weak. And he knows that we're weak. This is God standing at the door and saying to us, Dodo. Because oh, he knows. He knows that we're weak. He knows that we need this visible, holdable, tangible, tasteable reminder of how good he is and how good he has been to us in Christ. And so as we look back to our baptism and as we celebrate communion, feel God's seal upon your conscience, the reality 
of his good promises that you're safe in Christ, that you're safe for that wedding feast of the land of the Lamb as He keeps you in faith. Let's keep declaring that together as a church as we share in communion now. Uh, if the helpers could please come and, and distribute the bread and the juice. Um, I don't need to say anything more. I think we've said enough about communion today. So uh, I just want to invite you to reflect on that which you've heard about the gospel. How does this point you back to the past of the gospel? to your present need for Christ and to the future reality of that celebration. If you want something to read, go and read through um, Jesus' words in, in Matthew chapter 26 again. Matthew 26, verses 26 to 28. It's on page 832. Here's a chance just to reflect. Friends, we're now going to share in something of, of tremendous significance. And so now let's take the bread and remember Jesus' words that he said, Take and eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins.
And he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in the Father's kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we look forward to that day. Uh, for those of us who have...